Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Ed Lattimore is a retired American professional boxer with a record of 13-1-1, influencer, author, that happens to have a physics degree as well as being a U.S. Army veteran. He launched his blog, Mind and Fist, in 2013, focusing on the difficult lessons that he learned from growing up in public housing projects, overcoming alcohol and pornography addiction, and the general self-improvement that he talks about without any punches pulled. He's published two books, Not Caring What Other People Think is a Superpower, and Sober Letters to My Drunken Self, along with the writing and marketing guide for social media. Engagement is the new cocaine. And he's been a guest on amazing podcasts. And I'm not talking about this one. This is a great podcast, but I'm talking about James Altucher's Jordan Harbinger's The Art of Manliness, like all these incredible things, talking about poverty, physics, overcoming everything like that, mindset. He's also been mentioned in Ryan Holiday's blog, The Daily Stoic. And those of you that are philosophy nerds like me, that's a big thing. And then he was also in some guy named James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. It's only sold like 10 million copies or something. So those are powerful credentials. He recently released his first TEDx talk as well. To learn more about his mission and his stoic street smarts, check out edlattimore.com and also follow him on Twitter and IG. Ed, we were talking beforehand. I should have just hit record then. Thank you for being on, my friend. It's an honor to have you. You know, if you had hit record then, man, I don't know if I'd have got to hear my awesome intro. <laughs> Sometimes you forget. I certainly forget a lot of times that my life is not typical. On the surface, that's easy to see day to day just because of how I live and what I accomplish and what I, what I get out of my day. But then, you know, when you go list these things I've done, I'm like, oh, that's right. I do. Because we were talking about your know, speaking fees and things like that before we started recording. And I go, wow, you know, I really do have quite a bit of like, if I go write it down, I'm probably going to take what you did and just like expand on it slightly and use that in my pitch letter for places. <laughs> that was awesome. Though. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. If the interview ended right now, that's a gift. <laughs> well, I'll send that to you and that way you can use it and just put it on your one sheet and make it easy. Like you said, it's got to be tweetable. It's got to be something that people are going to hold on to and remember. And you came from this background, you came from this poverty, you came from this place of having to endure, having to get stronger or be conquered by other people. If you act like prey in front of a predator, they will treat you as such. But then you were able to get out of that and you were able to simultaneously join the military while stepping into your professional boxing career. How did those things influence one another? Can you tell us kind of a little bit of background of when you first grew up, because some people may know what you're doing now, but they may not understand where you came from and how you developed these kind of stoic street smarts as you were talking about. So the military and the boxing and where I grew up. Okay. So you ever read or I like look at the story of Jesus and I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, but there's something really interesting. Someone pointed out to me one day is that they make a big deal in the Bible about Jesus's birth. 
And they also make a big deal about his death and the final days up to it. But that middle ground, you know, what was going on? We just assume he came down as like the son of God and, and that's probably true or whatever. But there was probably some development story in there. I say all that to say a lot of people focus on part of this because of how I tell the story, the beginning, where I grew up and what I went through and all that. And then the transition or not even a transition, because to me, it feels like a transition. But to a lot of people who don't know the middle ground. Oh, and then you join the army and started fighting and all that. Right. And the reality is that we'll say from age of 18 to 28, that 10 year gap, really more like 29. I was just a lost soul of a mess. I think the only thing I really had going for me, I mean, I always had ambition, but what is ambition worth? The only thing I really had going for me is that I was fighting as an amateur and I was building up my skill set as an amateur and amateur boxing. Because when you're a person like me, you have these, I call them just delusions of grandeur. That's what they are, the delusions. But they're only delusions if your reality doesn't match up to you. I'm far more humble now that I have a reality that matches the delusions of grandeur I once had when I was nothing. But one day I had to look around and I came to a conclusion. These are my words. I got these from a guy named Hotep Jesus. And I was watching an interview of his and he said, my reality didn't match my idea of what my reality should be or something to that effect. And I said, yeah, that's that's true. I am not even close to what I can be. And furthermore, because I've always been what we'll just call it one of the gifts, we all get different gifts out the womb. One of my gifts is I've always been able to look and understand and appreciate the future. And I find most people are not good at this. It's kind of abstract. They're not very good at thinking beyond the first order effect that their actions are thinking. 12, 18, 24 months down the line or then further. And I, one night, I remember I was out drinking and maybe I got snubbed by a girl or something like that. I don't know. But I remember sitting there going, am I going to have more options or fewer options in the future? Which which direction are we going to go? And I said, I want to have more options. I don't want to be this guy when I'm 33. And that is what really kind of sparked the change that goes on. And so when when I started doing all this stuff in the military and going to school for physics and, and writing on my blog, to me, I feel like I'm making up for lost time. Like I pulled the rubber band so far in the negative direction of my life that since I didn't end up in prison or anything crazy, then I can go and do something constructive with my time and everything. And so that's what I did. I started to make up for lost time and try and close as much ground that I feel like I had missed or fallen behind on in my 20s. And the reality is not that I'm, I'm 37. I'm able to like look at everyone and go, okay, I wasn't really that far behind. People ain't really <laughs> that impressive. But because I took that approach now in every aspect, I think I'm at least ahead of the curve. So that's how that happened. I was really just trying to recover lost time. And then somewhere along the line of having my head down, I got ahead of the rest of the pack. And I feel really comfortable, really happy here. This is a good place. <laughs> and what you're saying is you just found this like powerful urgency. You're like, listen, I can just keep doing this and be the old guy in the club at 35. Or I can say, I don't want to do this. Or you have the wherewithal and the intelligence to decide that you want to do something different. 
I love this idea of physics. I was in chiropractic school before I joined the military. And for chiropractic, like we had to learn physics, biology, biochem, and the people that aren't listening, that don't understand this, we're not doing this because we're nerds, but it's like, it teaches you logic. It teaches you a formula. This is the language of logic. So it doesn't give a fuck about what's your opinion about what X should be. It doesn't care about what you feel about friction. It is the reality. And there's either a correct answer or not. And it makes you think logically. It makes you think in order. Yep. I tell people all the time. When I first started writing, I was an okay, at best, writer. And I mean, at best. That's being very generous, especially looking back. Hey, you, you can actually see some of my writing immortalized in my first book that was self-published. And I care what other people think is a superpower. And it still went on to do well because the message is great. And I'm, I'm better than average at marketing. But the writing skill, the putting the words on the page, terrible, in my opinion. What made me better was completing that degree in physics and being and because you're you're forced. People go, you know, that's science. How does that work? I go, well, you have to remember we, we're being forced to explain our thought process clearly, not just solve math problems. That that be a math major, but it, with, with physics, we have to look at a phenomena, describe that phenomena, then express it in numbers or vice versa, which is just as difficult, if not more, which is to look at a a mathematical equation and figure out, okay, how should this look or behave in the real world? And then what mechanics, it's easy because those are macro, you can touch, you can see. And then that's where I fell in love with the idea of studying physics because originally I was going to go and do electrical engineering and I decided oh, this is really cool. I want to do this instead. When I did an experiment with projectile motion, which is when a particle is under no other force, but the initial acceleration, velocity, and the angle. And and we did this experiment and the pellet landed where I said it was going to land. I said, oh, that's awesome because it was a prediction. So so you don't really have to exhaust your visualization and, and vocabulary there to describe what's going on. You still have to be accurate now to make you a better writer. But where it really shines is when you get into electricity and magnetism, because now you're dealing with something that we can't touch and see and tangibly manipulate. So we have to create analogies. We have to be precise with our words along with the analogies and still come up with repeatable, mathematically verifiable answers to problems and being able to do that and express how you did it that will make you a a better communicator even if you don't aren't heavy on the words just the fact that you understand okay i am saying this occurs when this this and this happens and here's why and oh also if you would like to repeat this here's what i did here's where i made mistakes here's what likely influenced the outcome to this way and that way all these things you have to do when you are writing a lab or something like that or one of the, one of my favorite activities that we were forced to do i'm not sure if this is the standard across all physics programs every class every semester for the major we had to break down two american journal of physics articles there were the questions the professor would have for us that we had to answer and use the information there plus our own information to defend or tear down an argument very good for your thinking very good for your communication not just the numbers the numbers are almost inconsequential that's just the language of the or i wouldn't even say language 
those are just the phenomes, the symbols of physics. But the the real heart, the communication, the words, that everyone's got to be able to do it. And like you said, you're replacing that nomenclature with now your own verbiage of what you're talking about, what's important to you, the point you're trying to make. And for me, that showed so often I would get a B on a test because I could show all my work, all my steps. So basically doing the whole idea of Occam's razor, that notion of, listen, if I can get to this answer in three steps instead of 12, that's always the more direct path. So even if it's quote unquote easier, if I do 12 steps, if I can do it in three, there's nine other times that I could mess up doing the 12 steps. And it could be something as simple as an arithmetic problem, or I don't balance this part of the equation as I carry it, or I don't put the negative where I should be putting the positive. And now through no fault of my own, everything else that I do is wrong by default because I took this wrong step. So by being able to be direct, making it simple, and now in business and communication, that directness is what allows us to cut through all the bullshit, all the tape and get to the real thing. There's a great book, one of my favorites, The Art of Learning by Josh Whiteskin. And he has a section in the book where he talks about this idea of making the circle smaller. And the idea is you practice a move because he's, he's talking about it in context of the Tachi push hands that he did. But also in chess, as you make a move, you want to make your motion as economical as possible, which means with as few moves as you can, and even fewer if you can get away with it. So I love that chapter, first of all. But the main idea I love expressed in that is that simplicity is the pinnacle of mastery. Any charlatan can make something more complicated and convoluted than it needs to be because, you know, what do they say? You know, dazzling with bullshit. If you can make them think that this is really hard and crazy and complicated, then they're going to look at your solution and go, oh, this guy must be something incredible. It takes a real purist of knowledge and ability to go, no, we want the most simple way to demonstrate this because we respect the knowledge so much that we don't want to taint it with our own ego. Or our own inadequacy. That's another reason why someone makes something complicated. I used to tell my students, I used to tutor. I would tell the kids I was working with, you have to understand something about this education system. The education system needs you to believe it takes nine to 18 weeks to get through and learn physics one, mechanics or whatever. It needs you to believe that. But the reality is what I'm going to show you is how to actually learn this stuff. And you'll soon realize, one, you don't need to be in school and your, your, your parents are probably going to hate me, but your grades are going to be up, so they're probably going to love me. And, and that ended up working out great. But I always told them, they benefit from you thinking this is difficult. And that's kind of a fundamental idea in, in all business anyway. You're brought in to solve a problem that we don't feel investing our resources in our resource, I mean, Tom, is the best use of it. So you're brought in and fixing it. But that's when you pay for something. When you go to school, there is a system in our public free school system that makes the kids believe. And maybe it's not that insidious. It's just a result of trying to teach to everyone. But it needs everyone to believe that these things are challenging. And you need to do this method and follow these steps. 
It doesn't matter how well you can articulate it. It doesn't matter how quickly you grasp it. It doesn't even matter if you know a better way. This is the way it's got to be done. And I think that's remarkably dangerous. But the main idea here, though, is that once you start aiming to simplify and remove all the excess, you simultaneously realize, one, removing the excess is quite difficult. Anyone can argue for why something shouldn't be there out of laziness. But when you argue why it shouldn't be there because you have to go, well, this does it in a fewer number of steps than that. And understand why those other steps are extraneous or superlative. That's hard. That's why simplification is a mark of mastery. The other thing you end up doing is you have to make your overall approach more skillful. It's like on a punch, you know, to throw a punch correctly. I don't think it's complicated, but I've been doing it for 15 years. But as I teach beginners to do it, I look at all the extra stuff they do. And I'm like, wow. And then even when I'm watching a top level fight, I'm like, wow, there's so much extra stuff. If this guy's good, he's going to take advantage of that millisecond you give him when you hit your arm just a bit instead of having the punch fire right off and he'll beat you to it. So th- these are the ideas around simplification and making the circle smaller. And that's what everything should be. Like you said, whether it be, like you said, you have tweeting down to an art, you have, this is my statement. This is why this is true. And then you hit them with that truth again. And then if you're doing a swipe where you have multiple examples of it, it's even more powerful. It's almost like I call them like a truth haiku where you just give that to them in this way that really that's what people will remember. Like you can say it all day, but even for my content, like I put it on Twitter, I get some reaction, but then I put on IG a snapshot of it and people just go crazy over it. And you can put a picture and you can bleed onto the content and give it to them. And they'll be like, ah, 500 likes. And then you write something like, Adversity is a gift. Stop being a bitch. Suck it up, buttercup. Without a deadline, time means nothing. And then thousands of people share it and love it and stuff. It's just the nature of the beast, I think. They want that soundbite that they can grab onto. Now, are they putting it into play in other areas? We don't know, but we can't force the horse to drink. We can lead it to water, but our job is to make them thirsty. And that's the goal so that they go out and find it themselves. And if they want more of it, they dive deeper into your books, into your content, into your product. Right. That's a great way to think about it because. As you work with people or look at people who attempt to do, for lack of a better phrase, and I hate this phrase, but it's the phrase we have that people understand most easily. Whenever you encounter someone who's trying to do the whole personal brand thing, one of the things that they fail to realize is that you're effectively making people curious about you. And if you do that right, they follow breadcrumbs to other things, other products, other offerings. But that's only if you do it right. And the hard part about doing that right is, one, you go, well, am I that interesting? <laughs> but two, the second point more to the idea is that you have to resist the temptation to give everything away. And you have to resist the temptation to think you don't have more to offer. Like you say, we want to over-deliver, but that's not always the right way to do it. We get more from the simplicity. We do more by saying less many times. And then like you're saying, if you think you don't have enough, the reality is you probably do have more than enough in that because if you're looking at it from a superficial level, that may not be enough. But when you dive deep into anything, when you go an inch wide and a foot deep, that's when you start learning. Like you forgot more about boxing than most people will ever learn. You forgot more about postulating physics equations and what most people will ever learn. 
but you take that for granted. But then when people are asking you questions, or you're making this analogy. Now you're like, okay, when the guy throws the jab, throws the cross and he drops his hand, I know that the hook's coming. He's telegraphing. He's showing me that it's coming. When Bruce Lee would talk about that, right? He says, I don't hit, it hits all by itself. Why? Because he's thrown that straight punch so many times that his body recognizes this person is coming forward or they're dropping their hand. He steps off to the side. He intercepts them. Truly Jeet Kune Do, the way they intercepting fist. But again, thousands of repetitions, efficiency, stripping away the inessentials, getting to the heart and the truth, which is what you're doing either verbally, physically, or intellectually whenever you're teaching somebody something. Yeah, absolutely. And you just do it over and over and over again. And before you know it, you're like, oh, I know so much. I actually, you know, it's funny. I actually made that comment last night at the class I teach. And I said, wow, I didn't, you know, I've learned a lot about boxing over the past 50 years or so. This is all up here, all this little stuff. And I was also very fortunate to have one of the, the best trainers in the world happen to live right up the road for me. That's just luck in and of itself. But you also have to approach the opportunity the right way. I see a lot of people squander these opportunities that the universe gives them. I said, wow, I've got this coach that's trained world champions up the road. I should probably take what he says seriously the whole way through. And it is a blessing because when you're around someone who is a good teacher, doesn't matter what they teach, you absorb a lot about what is important for transmitting knowledge. And this reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever seen Man on Fire with Denzel Washington and Christopher Walken. And it's one of my favorite movies. And there's this great line where Christopher Walken's character goes, a man can be an artist at anything, food or poetry, doesn't matter. All that matters is the skill with which he does it. He says something like that. And then he goes on to say, Creasy's artist death, and he's about to paint his masterpiece. And that's the whole, one of the most awesome things. Love that movie. But that's how I look at teaching. You can be a teacher or anything. In fact, teaching and execution are two different skill sets. And just because you execute well doesn't mean you'll be a great teacher. And there are a lot of teachers who didn't execute well. I do think you need to have a certain level of proficiency and interest in the thing you're going to teach, because otherwise you won't even know what to teach. But after that, then we're, we're adding on this other skill, which is the ability to look at a complicated thing, break it down into its parts and figure out how to get people to understand it, get people to go, well, this is hard looking, but I feel like I have it easily. And that's what I always like to do as a, as a teacher of, you know, whether it be boxing or physics, the areas that I've you know worked in tutoring or math or help people with training and how to lift weights. You have to understand people absorb information in a certain way. Can you get that information to them and be patient? The other thing, get be patient. Yeah. And we have to isolate the skill or the principle that we're trying to fix for them. Right. So like you said, if they're working the jab and they're dropping their hand, when they bring it back, now they're going to get caught. So you have to break that habit. And now you add that tool to the cross. Now you add that tool after the cross and now you put it into different areas or whether it be, Again, we talked about Occam's Rays or 80-20 principle or earning these things where it's like knowing them's not enough. We have to actually put it into play and then be honest with yourself and say, okay, no bullshit. If I put it into play right here, why can I not apply it to my business? Why can I not apply it to my physicality? Why can I not apply it to my relationships? If we use 80-20 or that simplicity, it would cut through a lot of that wasted time. It would be much more efficient. And I think you and I are the kind of people that 
if you can talk to me directly, efficiently, without being rude, I appreciate that a lot more. Exactly, man. I think one of the problems we have today, sadly, is that directness, people are so, we'll, we'll say sensitive. People are so sensitive today that, you know, direct talk is aggressively. And that's crazy to me because there's no other way to get things done. In fact, you know, you want to hear how, how bad this can be. There's a great, believe this was Freakonomics that wrote about this. There was a period where there were higher than normal amounts of plane crashes. And most of them were origin, you know, on this Korean airline. And it turns out when they dug deeper into it, the issue was the language structure of Korean and the honorifics and what's expected when you're communicating to someone who is superior versus inferior to you. So what would happen is a lot of times the assistant pilot would point out something, but he had to point it out in a certain way, which was basically useless because it wasn't a clear and present direction. And so crashes were happening. And this is why, on a side note, this is one of the reasons why English is the language all pilots have to know. So it really is a, a thing. At least that's what I've been told, at least for international flights. So that's what can happen when the communication is not clear. And what we have decided that it's far more important to be mindful of feelings when the reality should be, why don't we separate and not make this about feelings? This is just giving clear instruction, clear direction. And if you really care about that person, you are going to tell them that hard truth. You are going to be honest with them. There are people that I coach that are at the top level of their business where they are surrounded by yes men and women. But when I'm on the call with them and I was like, no bullshit, do you really think that this is what this is? And they're all like, well, I'm talking to my CFO and my COO. I was like, I'm not talking about those people. What do you fucking think? And then they're all like, well, there's this thing. And I was like, and then you just pull it out. And now all of a sudden it's like, that is what's going on. Like you are drinking the Kool-Aid. You're listening to what they're saying. The co-pilot is telling you everything's fine and you can see that this thing's on fire. You need to step into that and lean into that and figure out, at least explore it, like you said, with this curiosity of, well, what is the worst thing that can happen? If I find out this is true, that I'm helping my company and myself and my business and my morale. But if I don't, what am I doing? I'm allowing my ego to be fed. And when we feed the ego, we kill any other area of us that can actually grow into something that's worthwhile. Here's the thing about getting better in any area of your life. It requires, not almost, I mean, it, by definition, it requires you to look at the areas where you're inadequate and then formulate some type of plan to go about correcting it. However, if you've got yourself conditioned to believe that you're a certain way, and or that you can do no wrong or whatever, or that, that it's the universe's fault. Anything that deflects, that removes your agency, anything, then you lose the ability to improve. You lose all of that. So the ego is, is a good thing in some cases, but in, in a lot of areas, it will keep you from being better. It will keep you from getting the most out of life. Yeah, it'll impede you for sure. And you're all a fan of Bruce Lee, aren't you? Yeah, one of my favorite books is The Tao of Jeet Kune Do. I just put out on my website a summary, some of, the, some of the big ideas in that book. So what I look at Bruce Lee as, 
is is a guy who through martial arts learned how to think and approach and deal with people in the world. I think any discipline has the capability to transform you or has the capacity to transform you from a less adequate version of yourself to the most adequate version of yourself. And I think Bruce Lee figured this out via Kung Fu and then the subsidiary of what he was doing with his martial arts and then the movies in his life. So there's a lot to be learned because a lot of people don't take their thoughts and put them down like that. Certainly not at the level of mastery that he had. And so if, if you get a chance to read and understand it, every time I read through the Tao Ji Kuto, one of the things that amazes me is how he has described fighting techniques with words. Because fighting is not typically something <laughs> that you learn in a book. And I'm not saying you can learn how to fight from reading the Tao Ji Kundo. But what you can learn, I use imagery, analogies, metaphors, ideas like that to help people learn how to throw a punch better or defend or block. And what that book does is it gives you a lot of those tools to kind of visualize, okay, this is what it should be like. This is what I should be trying to do. Last night, I was trying to help everyone throw the, the jab more effectively. And I said, okay, I need you to remember that all the punches are the same in boxing. The only thing that differs is what your fist does. And now what we want to do for this jab is keep that in mind. But now I need you to imagine that you're trying to make your shoulder hit him in the chin, not just your fist. And at the end of the punch, you're going to put your shoulder out trying to extend that. And of course, it's not going to make it, but you're going to add that snap to a jab and it's going to become a weapon and it's going to be, you know, you're going to do it in a way to where your chin is protected from anything over the top. And it was beautiful watching everyone figure this jab idea out from that. You know, I didn't take that from the Taoji Kundo, but the idea of thinking of your body this way and breaking down a complicated idea into a series of analogies and metaphors to help people understand, I think there's a lot to be gained from that. And it doesn't matter whether it's Kung Fu or boxing, whatever your thing is, that discipline can really help and make, make a difference. Yeah, we're learning to hit not to the target, but through the target. I think the boxer, Jack Dempsey, they were asking him, they said, are you thinking of hitting the guy in the chin or in the cheek? He's like, I'm thinking of hitting him in the back of the fucking head because that's how we get there. Like you have to have that kind of idea. And in boxing, if I don't feel like I'm going to land, even when I do land, I don't have that commitment. I don't turn my hip or my shoulder. And now that thing that should be done, it's over. That opportunity is gone. And maybe now that guy's made the correction. He's like, okay, when he doubles up on the jab, I know the overhand's coming. I'm going to slip underneath this thing and catch him with the hook in the meantime. And now all of a sudden you're caught. I've done martial arts since I was 11. I'm actually an instructor under Bruce Lee's protege, Guru Dana Nosanto. So Jeet Kune Do, that idea, whether it be this philosophical ideal from the Tao of Jeet Kune Do or his idea that truly like absorb what is useful, discard what is useless and add what is specifically your own. I mean, as an entrepreneur, as a creator, I can't think of a better mantra for us to have. And the original statement that he had was actually, they were asking him, I believe Jesse Glover, one of his first students, and when he first came back to the United States, he was like, what do you use? Where do you take from? He said, I use whatever works and I steal it from wherever I can find it. But it didn't seem as eloquent. So then he kind of went with the, so he kind of used a Zen, Taoism, wordsmithed it more, and now it has more of an impact. And then 
putting that into play is what we're trying to do every day. I still whatever works and then take it from here. And that's, that's awesome. It's the truth. He said he didn't have the compunction to be worried about that stuff. And a lot of people talked about mixing martial arts back then, but he was one of the few people that was like, listen, I don't care what this style is. I don't care what these people believe. I'm doing my own thing. And if you don't like it, then that's fine. And that's what allowed him to really revolutionize. Like he took these concepts that we are just now seeing come to fruition in the UFC in some of this mixed martial art, no holds barred kind of idea, but it's different to put it in a play. Here's the thing. Like for me, before I got hurt, I understood stoicism. I understood philosophy. I understood Taoism. I understood Zen, but I didn't have anything that forced me to really put it in a play. But when you get hit with adversity, when I got paralyzed, when I died on the table and like had to look at my life at 40 years old and say, what do I do now? I have nothing. I'm broke, divorced, bedridden, paralyzed. I put my life towards this thing and it's taken from me. Now, what do I have? And all those words sound like a bunch of flowery bullshit until you start putting it into play. And it's not a question of not knowing what to do. It's a question of not having the balls to step forward and do what needs to be done consistently. At least in my opinion, that's what's happened many times. Yeah. When you were saying that adversity thing and how these are just words until it's time to use them, I think one of the, there's this weird little group or, or trend on social media of calling a lot of these ideas, these platitudes that are just cheap to pop out. And I, I never understood it. And then one day I, I got it because I was, you know, saw somebody doing it and I was like, you know, what do you know about that? But that's the thing. When life is going well and you just take these ideas and you just are just saying them for whatever thing, it diminishes the meaning at best. It just, they're not worth that much when they don't come from the place that they need to come from, which is a place of hardship. But when somebody delivers them, who's obviously gone through it, you're forced to look at it just a little differently. At the very least, you lose your typical counter to it, which is that only works or that doesn't work. You know, that only works when things are going well. That's what some people say. I'm like, nah, this is how I lived through and managed and figured this out thing in my life. You can see my life. You're going to tell me I'm wrong. Maybe it's not the best thing for you, but to discount it because you don't like the way it sounds is just an unfortunate. It's missing an opportunity the universe is giving you. I really think there's kind of like these loops that the universe plays on to teach you something. And when you get it, the loop's still going to play. The difference is now you know, so you don't fall for it. But if you don't, you're going to be like, why does this keep happening to me? Well, why aren't you learning from it? Like, it's a, it's, it's a better question to ask. Adversity is always teaching us lessons. The thing is, are we going to learn the lesson or just keep failing and then call those failures our life? I mean, we have to be able to step into it. And it is going to be uncomfortable. But if there's anything you've ever done that you've been successful at, you'll look back and realize that there was hardship. And there was a point where you just said, you know what? I know it's going to suck. I know this is going to be hard. I'm fine with that. I've made peace with that. Or I'm too close to finishing this thing. I've done too much. I've given up too much to get to the place that I want to go. So now the quitting is not really an option. And we're better off just pushing through as opposed to getting in a place where we can't do anything else. There are a lot of people when I was asking questions about what they wanted me to ask you for this interview, a lot of people kind of in that age group that you were talking about when you were kind of learning about yourself those like 10 years where you felt that you were kind of palpating around to see what was real for you. People are asking about how do I find purpose, especially younger people? Because there's people that are out of high school. They're like, do I need to go to college? Or people that are 
thinking about doing an entrepreneurial endeavor, but they don't want to actually step into the side hustle commitment, what would you say to them? How do they find more of who they are and find sort of what that purpose is for them? Well, the first thing you got to understand, language is super important here because language sets expectation, even if you don't know what the expectation is that is being set, but you are being influenced. I bring that up to say, no one finds their purpose. You know, you're not just walking around and go, oh shit, there's my purpose. That's where it's been, behind the couch, shit, right? <laughs> like, that's not how it works. What really happens is you forge it. At best, we want to use less energy, extensive language. You discover it at best. But even discovery as opposed to fun, what is the difference? Discovery implies intention and usually the uncovering of something which is an exertion of energy. So you don't find your purpose at all. You know, thinking you will find it one day is, you know, it's, it's like thinking you're going to find yourself. You don't find yourself either. You build yourself, you carve yourself, you shape yourself out of things. And that is the result. I, I tell everyone. Uh, this, is what I, this is what I ask guys too when I'm working on. What's the hardest thing you've done? And what they tell me it tells me a lot. Oh, so you never played an organized sport, right? Which is like the lowest level of difficulty for the average person. Oh, you, you didn't, what did you study in college? Oh, well, the, there's certainly no rigor there. No one to tell you right or wrong, no problems to solve in your communications degree. Well, okay, well, but you're an adult now. What does your workout schedule look like? What does that do? Have you transformed your body? Have you done anything hard? Oh, can you play an instrument? Speak another language, something. I used to say there were three things you needed to do for self-improvement. And they're the three things that will uncover the most about you in any way and will build your purpose. I've added a fourth now. But in general, before I get to those four things, to uncover, to discover, to shape, to carve your purpose out of life, you have to do difficult things that you don't think you'd be able to accomplish or will take time and dedication and challenge you. you like it, it should be one of those things that like 20% of the population does at best. I'm usually low. One of the reasons why I have no trouble finding and looking for my purpose, man, I've, I've done some very difficult things in my life. And from there, I learned quite a lot of general lessons that are specifically applicable to other areas. It just depends on how important them. But the four things you should do, you should learn another language to at least be one level of communication. And that's the European level of proficiency. B1 basically means, you know, I can can talk to you like you're a, a seven-year-old and you're gonna, we're going to be able to communicate back and forth about your day. And the people go, oh, like a seven-year-old, no, man, kids aren't at seven. They're not going to be using crazy big words unless they're into that, but you should be able to discuss like, you know, where something is, what the color is, how it made you feel, what you're going to do, what you want to eat, that kind of stuff. Pretty basic grasp of a language. You should live on commission from sales. That'll teach you almost everything about the real world. If more people had to do that, I guarantee there'd be fewer people talking about billionaires shouldn't exist and let's take and you know landlords of scum, all that. Like basically, people just don't understand economics. These are the same people that write. I'm seeing this meme go around now, which is a continuation of another meme. And what they're talking about how if LeBron James was in prison in Russia, they would stop everything to get him out. Well, look at what, what Brittany Granner's pay compared to LeBron. I'm like, you only make that comparison if you don't understand economics. Like, like it's a fundamental 
ignorance. But, you know, working in sales will reveal a lot. And then train to take a fight. You ain't got to, like, be pro or nothing, but but anyone can do amateur boxing. Up to the age of 35, and then over 35, we got to, like, get an x-ray or some shit. But, like, anyone can do that. Training for a year and taking a few fights, you will learn so much about discipline and what it takes to be top-notch human and really to compete and keep your mind on something that is hard and painful, which is when anything worthwhile is doing. And then the last thing that, that used to be just those three, the last thing I added, I think everyone should learn to play an instrument. I just think there's something really unique about anything that forces you to learn a general system to master and use, but has an open end of creativity, much like language, much like fighting, much like selling. There's kind of a basic thing you figure it out. But also, what, what two of those things have in common? You can't fake the funk on any of that shit. Either you can do it or you can't. And your peers are all going to be generally helpful is what I've found. There's like an outside perception. But then when you get into it, you go, oh, fighters are some of the nicest people, most humble people you'll ever meet. Because, you know, you get your ego dragged to the mud that many times. You tend to have a different approach to humans. I think that all will work out great. So that's how you find your purpose. You don't find it. You shape and forge it. You know, at worst case scenario, you spend a thousand hours on something and you're like, this ain't for me. Well, now you have a new skill and you know it doesn't work. And those are both wins for your short time on this planet. Yeah, that's it. Like you said, we stack that experience. We stack those skills up and that gives us that unique lens through which we see things. And that's where we see gaps in the market. Like that's where we see this niche. It's like, man, nobody's taking advantage of this or we as entrepreneurs, man, I wish there was somebody that would do this. I wish I could find an editing software or whatever it is. And now it's like, huh, no bullshit. How hard would that be? And then you start, like you said, because you understand sales, because you understand this other language. Now you can kind of bring that together and say, if I really applied this for a certain amount of time and I knew how to use a click ad just to see if there was any interest in it. And now you have a real idea you're looking at what's really doing. You're just doing some deep dive on the process. But like you said, that serves you in any arena that you enter. And again, that adversity shows us not what we think we are, but it strips away all the stuff that we're not. And it gets down to what's really going on. And now you're there, like you said, raw, you've been knocked down, you've been knocked out. And now you're like, why did I get knocked out? Or am I just upset that I got knocked out because I wasn't expecting it? Or am I thinking I was tougher than I was? It's like, it doesn't matter. Get back up and go back to the gym the next day. That's the hardest part because there's always the athletic people that walk in where they're PT studs. They can pick up anything quickly, but the minute they get anybody in there that knows what they're doing and either starts catching them like it's a 135-pound guy against a 200-pound guy, again, Bruce Lee fighting this, he would have a little bit more of an advantage than we do in a lot of those aspects. Or even in jujitsu where you get tapped out by somebody, it's like, dude, you have to ask yourself, okay, am I willing to learn this lesson? Am I willing to deconstruct why I got beat? Or did I just go in there for six months and now I was like, oh, I've already learned all I need to learn. Or, oh, yeah, I know how to box. Eh. No, you know about enough to get your ass kicked right now. Or you know enough about jujitsu to have some bad preconceived ideas of what the fight is. And then when two guys come at you and one of them pulls a knife and you're like, oh, they didn't talk about this in jujitsu class. It's like, well... Yeah. So now what are you going to do? That's how we learn. One of my favorite articles that I've written is how to avoid a street fight and what to do if you can't. And one of the things I talk about, I go, look, man, train that stuff because you want to train it. For self-defense, man, get yourself a firearm and hope you never have to use it. 
because you know I'll be damn man. I'm just out chilling and somebody drunk. First of all, like, like I'm a great de-escalator of people. Like it was a skill I had to pick up and learn growing up. Otherwise, I was gonna find myself in a lot more fights and fights in that type of environment. There ain't no telling what's gonna happen, what's gonna go. So being a great de-escalator of of situations of people, I am fully confident that I can keep a situation from going south. But I'll never forget what somebody said to me. I think it was a drill sergeant. Said, lift so you look like someone people don't want to fight. Carry a gun in case they decide to anyway. <laughs> I said, okay, that's sound advice. Like, it makes sense, you know, ounce prevention worth a pound of cure, you know, but at the end of the day, better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. That's just how I feel about all these things. I think there's something else that I want to point out, though. You're coming from this place when you know how to defend yourself or if you carry a weapon, you can have this confidence. You can allow yourself this luxury of de-escalating something because when you de-escalate it in that manner, people can tell that that's not your only line of defense. Like you're not lashing back emotionally or you don't have this like feigns, I'm outraged or you shouldn't be doing this. Like, no, if you come from this place where you're calm, where it's like, man, I don't think this is the best way for us to deal with this. I think it, you know, it's going to cause a lot more trouble. Why don't we just step back? Why don't we take a breath? What I found is that adversity has momentum. And when we stop and take a step back, it stops that. Adversity has momentum, man. That's a gem right there. Ain't that the truth? One of the ways I look at it, I never put it in those terms, but one of the ways I look at this is like, if you can interrupt somehow, this is why alcohol is so dangerous and gets people in just so many stupid situations. Because everything is like, when you're under the influence, everything is a good idea. And not only that, you're able to to rationalize why it is. You're not able to step outside of yourself. But if you're able to step outside of yourself and go, oh, man, that seems like, is this going to work out for the best? And just ask yourself that question and be honest, because it's hard to be honest, because a lot of times we want to be biased on the positive. You go, well, not really, which is the conclusion you should reach. But (laughs) a lot of people don't do it that way. And like you said, we rationalize everything. I mean, even serial killers rationalize their behavior. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the best option in a lot of situations. And I want to be respectful of your time. I could talk to you for hours. So there are going to be people that are asking also, how did you get connected to James Clear or how did you get connected to Ryan Holiday? Because those are where a lot of people heard about you from. And that's something where they're just like, wow, how does that happen? So this is cool. Here's a really powerful lesson. Because I had been, what we'll say, toiling away on social media for a while. And there's also my life when you go look up Ed Lattimore. It's not just my website that comes up. There's, you know, my boxing record, the stuff that comes up, or box rec, which is like the holy grail of fights. Like if you're not a box rec, you're full of shit. Like, and the like, and if you think you can fool us, <laughs> we know where to look, kind of do. Or like the books I've written, the stuff I've, I've spoken about with sobriety. Now the TED Talk is coming up. Plus, like there's other things. So there's like, there's just a ton of stuff, right, about me. But how this occurs, a lot of the stuff that kicks off a lot of the other stuff, I write the book, not caring what other people think is a superpower. I still think, I mean, a lot of people get a lot out of it. I just know I'm a better writer now and I have better resources. So I look at it a certain way. But that book opened up 
so many opportunities because people have seen it and they were like, oh, and then they look into who I am and they go, oh, and now they're like, let's have you on. So if I could make this into a course or something and give an outline, because it's hard to talk about this, but I'm going to try. You want to have a body of work. If you're familiar with the late Kevin Samuels, he he talked about this a few times that like, my one clip blows up, and so I'm up to a million subs. But before then, I had been producing content for three, four years, longer than that, and people were able to go see. I didn't just pop up overnight. There's a real base. There's something beneath this iceberg. This is real. So that when you have something to catch their attention, they come back, they see all the content, everything you've done, they're like, oh, this is somebody who's not just fly by night. This is just not somebody who's just a talking head on social media, which is what a lot of guys, they are. They have their social media and that's it. This is a real dude. I think that helped a lot. Having just been doing, creating, writing, because I enjoyed that. And then when, when I did something that blew up or took shape, then it was like, oh, wow, this is a real dude. This is cool. Let me go. Let's go look into him. And it gives people more stuff to work with. I tell the story of time, you know, I, I put a lot of money and energy and skill and knowledge into my website. And, and I think it shows not just in the traffic it brings in, but the way it looks, the presentation, the, the feel, all that's on me. I decided to try working out with a PR agency last year. And it is one of the top firms. They were incredibly impressed by the work I had done on my own. And it made their job easier when it came to reaching out. So you want to always build as if no one is going to help you. So that when they do, they're like, oh, do you even need our help? No, no, no. I need your help. Come on in. But it's, it's got to look like you're in here learning. You're in here investing. You take what you're doing seriously. No one's going to come across me. And I know most people still have no idea who I am. But no one's going to come across my presentation on the Internet they're not going to come away with the idea that I don't take myself seriously, that I don't have something worthwhile to say. They'll see all the people I've mentioned, all the people I've been part of, all the work on the site, my Wikipedia page, all my social media followers. They're going to go, wow, okay, this is at the very least someone we should pay a little closer attention to. And I think you made a beautiful point there. If you truly want greatness, if you truly want mastery in your arena, don't seek out the validation of these other people that are there. Just do the work like nobody's watching. And then eventually you're shaking hands with them as a peer. And now all of a sudden, all this permission or all these accolades that you wanted by happenstance after the fact. But again, that's what you have to do. You have to work for five, six, seven years, even writing. I'm writing on my second book now and I'll write four pages of what feels like garbage, but it gets me to one paragraph that's actually gold or one statement. And now it's like, Okay, it was worth it. Yeah, it was worth it. Yeah. That's it. And that's how we get there. So tell us more about your TEDx talk and then tell us more about where we can find you, find more about you, support you, see where you're speaking because you're doing a lot more speaking now and you're in high demand. We got to get people more aware of your TEDx. I'm really happy this turned out. It's ultimately going to be a great investment because, you know, TED doesn't pay. And, (laughs) and, you know, when, when I was applying to different talks, I just picked anyone in the, in the country. I got one in Austin, Texas, not the most expensive, not the least expensive to fly to, but it was there. So the talk I gave was on addiction and identity, really the role that your identity plays and how that's one of the most underrated or under 
appreciated aspects of an addiction. If you can get a person to stop seeing themselves as someone who uses or someone who drinks, you're going to go a long way because that change is going to trigger a bunch of other changes that are all in support of recovery. Like it's going to get them to stop hanging out places where it's easy to slip up. It's going to your friends are going to change regardless, but it's going to get you to be a proactive process in that instead of reacting like, why aren't they inviting me out anymore? That kind of deal. So I wanted to talk about that because that means a lot to me. I'm, I've been sober since December 23rd, 2013. So it'll be nine years this December. And thanks, man. It's really the best thing I've ever done for myself. You know, I have my work ethic or whatever, but what was getting in the way of my work ethic, the alcohol, I got rid of that. And it was like, it started out gradually, gradual improvements, like the one year's, you know, zero, a month zero to year one. Not big differences, but positive level of life going up, man. But different between now and then is is night and day, and it just keeps growing. I'm really, I'm just happy for it all. So that's what the talk was about. And you can just find it to type in addiction and identity or Lattimore or something like that. My wife informed me, she goes, you know, you know, when I look you up, that talk is the second thing that comes up on YouTube. The first thing is a convert kit that a short film on my life, what I've gone through. And that's being well-received. Another piece of the puzzle for promoting myself and, and really getting out there. And if you guys go to Ed Lattimore, you're going to find all these resources, all these incredible articles that we've mentioned. He has courses on overcoming porn addiction, all this kind of material that's very valuable. And again, it's one thing to have one person that like absorbs information and then kind of regurgitates it. But to have a person that's actually lived it, actually been there, actually knows what it's like, and is not just trying to imitate it. Again, not a talking head. There's true substance behind this. And again, as people don't know necessarily, but we don't get paid for TEDx's. You can't pitch anything at a TEDx, but if you do a good job and if you actually speak from the heart and you have something powerful, like what your speech is, people naturally try to find you. People naturally want to seek you out. So again, it's about all those reps, all those years, all the toiling to have something worth saying. And then in about 10 minutes, you can say something powerful and all of a sudden people latch onto it. And now you're changing lives and creating powerful influence, not just impact, but influence, like genuine influence, not the fake influence, like on social media when people are trying to be fake. Yeah, exactly, man. I'm, I'm really, I thought I consider myself blessed to have the connections because there was, it was just a really not crazy story, but it's one of, you know, who, you know, and who you treat and how you treat them well. One of my best friends, we met when we fought, we actually were roommate. We, I know we, our first meeting was we fought in Kansas city. It was a, a fight. He beat me. And then he ended up being a roommate in the project, a program I was a part of for boxing out in Los Angeles. And then we we just became good friends and kept in touch. And he's really gotten to speaking since he's quit. Well, he's done fighting. He never went pro. He's probably the most decorated heavyweight amateur, but he never went pro. And we've been working on speaking. And he told me he got a person that does the outreach. So I reached out to her and talked to her. And she was like, oh, you know, and then she referred other people. And one of them was this guy, Frank King, who was like, oh, I'll help you get a TED Talk. That'll really help your, your speaking stock. So went. And work with this guy. And he, one of the things he did was he curates all the lists of all the places doing TED Talks and go apply, sent it to me. I applied to every single one, followed his instruction on what to do for application. 
and all that, including I recorded three different lengths of videos because different, I guess, different committees request different lengths for your audition where you explain it and applaud. And with the one that got back to me, they actually, I guess their, their collection form wasn't working. And so they didn't get my email. I logged on one day and I had like three emails from this place. Like, Hey, we really want you to be part of it. You know, come on. So, and it was a high school down in Austin. And then when they told me, I was like, yeah, I'm in. Wait, when is it? And it was in 30 days, right? <laughs> 30 days I had to, I created the talk and then rehearsed and did it. And I was like, all right, cool. I think it's going to end up paying off a lot. People are already getting a lot out of the talk. I'll be able to say, I have this talk and it'll make it easier to get the next one too. And, so it'll be fun, especially when I when I put together everything for my, my next book. It's a hell of a journey, my friend. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Follow him on social media. Follow him on Twitter and IG at Lattimore.com. Thank you for being on. I know you got a lot going on. It's good to talk to you. I'm sure I'll talk to you in the future at some point. Maybe I get to shake your hand in the future somewhere too. I'm sure our paths will cross. Hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. This message resonates with you. Please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Non Verba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.